Hello. Since the recording of this edition of Mooney Goes Wild, which you're about to hear, very sadly, one of the contributors, Dr. Evan Gochran, passed away. All of us at Mooney Goes Wild and RTE would like to extend our sincere condolences to Evan's family, friends and colleagues on their loss. This programme, which is presented by Terry Flanagan, is dedicated to her memory. Every year, millions of animals set out on arduous journeys over land, sea and air, crossing continents and spanning the globe in search of water, weather, food and the pursuit of romance. Or the propagation of the species, to be more exact. We're all familiar with the story of our swallows who winter in Africa and come to Ireland in April to rear a family and how it takes more than a single sighting to confirm the arrival of summer here. We've also heard about the epic expeditions undertaken by the wildebeest of the Serengeti. Their annual migration sees a million strong herd along with thousands of zebra and gazelles moving across Tanzania and Kenya and back again once more in pursuit of food and water all the while avoiding the attention of hungry lions and humpback whales who are literally giants of the natural world growing to about 18 metres who travel up to 8,000 kilometres when they migrate to warmer waters to give birth those are the superstars of global migration. But today, I want to explore the astonishing tests of endurance undertaken by some more humble, lesser-known species, each of whom spend part of the year right here in Ireland. So let's start at the beginning. What exactly is migration? And why do so many species do it? Dr. Evan Gochran is a zoologist in Trinity College, Dublin. Migration is the seasonal pattern of behaviour in animals where they travel from one habitat to a completely different habitat and they make this journey either by land, sea or air, depending on the species. And they migrate over vast distances and often in, in really large numbers as well. It's different to dispersal, which is when an animal makes a single permanent move to a new home. And this usually involves, you know, a juvenile who's just on the cusp of adulthood. But migration, on the other hand, it involves a return journey. And in most migrating species, it happens annually. So animals migrate to find food, to avoid harsh conditions or to reproduce, and maybe a mixture of all three. It's an adaptive response to seasonal or geographic variation in resources. So as you move further away from the equator, the earth becomes increasingly seasonal. And many migrants take advantage of good food and weather conditions that occur in an area for a limited period. And then they may migrate away from harsh weather conditions when the seasons change. So they'll take an advantage of an area that has good food resources to get into good breeding condition, for example, but then move somewhere else that is much more suitable for them to actually have their young. It's only as recently as the end of the 19th century that ornithologists agreed that swallows migrate. It's hard to believe, before that, many people thought that these small, sleek flyers spent the winter hibernating in mud at the bottom of ponds or tucked into the banks of rivers. Another myth had it that barnacle geese were not hatched from eggs but emerged as adult birds from barnacles living in the sea attached to floating wood. There was a belief in Ireland that it was acceptable to eat barnacle goose during Lent as the flesh was considered fish and many did eat them, including priests and bishops. In 1822, a wounded white stork landed near the village of Klutz in Germany. A 75 centimetre long spear protruded through its neck. The spear was similar to ones used by hunters in Central Africa. The bird, with spear intact, was mounted and stuffed and is now on display in the University of Rostock in Germany. Since then, more than 25 similar storks with spears have been discovered. This was the first evidence of long-distance bird migration. Today, with the help of ringing studies and satellite tracking, we now know that these storks migrate more than 4,000 kilometres from Africa to Germany and back. 
The history of modern ringing began with the Danish man Hans Christian Mortensen, who in the late 1890s perfected the procedure of attaching a ring with an address to a bird's leg. His reason for doing this was to build up knowledge on where the birds flew to, how long they lived and any other information such tagging could lead to. But it's not all about birds. The painted lady butterfly migrates from northern Africa to Ireland for the summer and back again during autumn. They get their name from old Victorian-style houses in San Francisco that were repainted in the 1960s in three or more colours to enhance their architectural details. And those colours of the butterfly certainly do. It is the world's most widely distributed butterfly and it undergoes this tremendous journey every year to ensure there is always a food supply to provide an animal that weighs half a gram to travel halfway round the earth to complete its life cycle. During the summer, I met up with Jesmond Harding, co-founder of Butterfly Conservation Ireland. I wanted to learn more about the amazing life cycle of this tiny butterfly which migrates to and fro across the world. The Painted Lady is an excellent example of a butterfly that does just that. And that discovery was actually made quite recently in 2009. There was an enormous bit of research done relying about 60,000 records collected from all over Europe. And the research was carried out by scientists from Butterfly Conservation UK, from Rothamsted Research, the University of York, and they put together a picture of what the Painted Lady was doing. And yes, it actually does make a 14,500 kilometre round trip from tropical Africa to within the Arctic Circle and back within a year, and that journey includes Ireland. So really is an amazing story. And that research went a long way to unravelling the mystery of not just Painted Lady inward migration to Ireland, but of Painted Lady reverse migration in the autumn. Because before that 2009 study, we only thought that the Painted Ladies came to Ireland. They lived here for a while and then they died, but they certainly did not go back to Africa. That was the belief. However, its migration pattern is different. When they come here in spring, you can see them actually coming in because they fly at eye level. In 2009, for example, I was in Kinvara in late May, early June, and I was astounded, Terry, to see hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of painted lady butterflies flying in across the sea, across the wall at the edge of Kinvara village. They settled on red valerian growing on the limestone wall. Some of them settled on the road and actually were crushed by traffic, which was an awful thing to hear and see after travelling so far. But they travelled at eye level and you knew they were coming in. The reason why it was believed for so long that they died off in the autumn was that no one had ever seen them actually leave Ireland in the autumn. We now know they do. And that was discovered by use of radar that can pick up insects migrating. And what it does is it migrates out of sight. Now, I've actually been lucky enough to see an individual painted lady do this. And I was amazed to see it. And 2019, which is a bumper year for the species here, massive influxes. I saw a painted lady butterfly on the 21st of September 2019, feeding on Devil's Bit Scabies in Lullybeg. Beautiful sunny day. It was a perfect, it was a, to all intents and purposes, it was a summer's day. Without warning and without being chased by anything, this butterfly took off from the plant and flew vertically, like a helicopter, up, up, up and up until it was invisible, disappeared from view. What that butterfly was doing was looking for a following wind and when it reached the altitude where it found that wind, it would then head south. And that's one of the ways in which a tiny insect migrates. It uses whatever help it can get from the elements and a following wind is one such help. But surely something as small and as short-lived as a butterfly can't make it all the way from Africa to Ireland. No, it's like a migration relay. So the butterfly leaves, the 2009 migration, for example, they originated near Marrakesh in Morocco. They went to central Spain. They laid eggs, they bred, they died. Their offspring were the ones that arrived in Kinvara in May 2009. So there are up to six successive generations that make it from tropical Africa to within the Arctic Circle every year. And it's one of the few butterflies that actually reaches Iceland. So these butterflies don't undertake a marathon journey. It's more of a relay. 
They make the return journey over many generations, stopping to lay eggs on plants along the way. The caterpillars then feed on the plants and finish the journey as adult butterflies. Another animal that you would not associate with migration is the bat. Bats are known to hibernate. In Ireland, there are nine bat species and all are insectivorous. They don't suck our blood or get caught in our hair or do us any harm. But on warm, dry summer and autumn evenings, we can watch them hoovering up thousands and thousands of midges as we enjoy our barbecues without having to use chemicals to kill them. But recent research has shown that some species of bats do actually migrate. In late autumn, I travelled to County Cavan to meet up with bat specialist Dr Tina Ockney of Bat Conservation Ireland to find out more about this migration. Bats do hibernate, but they also will migrate in mainland Europe to hibernation sites from their summer residence sites. While bats in Ireland, traditionally we would see them as a truly hibernation species. We don't know if there are migratory bats in Ireland, but it's something that we're actually looking into because of the Nortusius pipistrelle turning up in Ireland since the mid-1990s. It has been found that there is a stronghold of this particular species around Loch Ney, particularly in County Antrim, and there's been some maternity roosts actually discovered in that area as well. While in the Republic of Ireland, slowly we're getting Nautusius pipistrelle has been picked up across the whole of the island, but we haven't found any maternity colonies as of yet. Now, this particular species on the continent, they do migrate? Yes, they are known for the migration. They have been documented as the longest migratory species. And where do they migrate to and from? Well, traditionally they're migrating from Eastern Europe along the border of Russia in a south-southeast direction towards the Iberian Peninsula of Spain and Portugal. And generally when they're migrating, we notice that there's a large migratory route around the end of summer. And the longest migratory route has been documented through banding or ringing of bats from Latvia all the way to Spain. A total of 2,224 kilometres was documented from a single bat. And how was this migration discovered? There's a, a bird station in Latvia and it's a large ringing station for birds due to the migratory birds going passing through this part of Latvia. And I noticed while they were actually ringing and catching birds, there was a large volume of bats turning up. So a programme started where they actually started ringing these bats and it turned out they were Nartusis pipistrels. So a massive ringing programme was started and repeated again in 2014. And as a result, bats that had rings on them were turning up all across Europe and uh, that literally sparked the interest that these are very very long raging migratory bat. So the Nathusius pipistrelle has been shown to migrate across Europe and apart from catching and tagging these bats in Ireland many thousands have been caught and tagged throughout Europe. Bat surveyor Ben Quinn first came across this species in County Cavan And over the last few years, he has been catching and tagging them to try and build up an idea of their movements. So he lives in hope of coming across the tagged bat at some time. Now, Ben, that's one just after going through there. We're at Kilachandra Lake here in County Cavan, and you have the distinction of being the first person to discover the Natusius pipistrelle here. Well, at this particular location, yes. They've been found, obviously, elsewhere. But uh, yeah, I just happened to be down here in preparation for a talk I was going to be giving later on to a group of people here in Kilachandra Town. And I came down to the town lake just looking for a suitable location to come out with the group after the talk. Usually we do that to try and bring them somewhere that they can see the bat detectors in action and get to here and maybe even see a few bats. Mm-hmm. So I came down here in advance of the talk and switched on my bat detector and... Like just this huge cacophony of bats. It was a bit overwhelming at first, but fortunately I had recently purchased a small bat detector that actually gave a graphic representation, showed a sonogram. So with that, I was able to, to start to resolve itself out into three different species. The first two would be what I was expecting to see, the common pipistrelle, the soprano pipistrelle, and then the odd Dobentis bat flying through on the water. But I was also getting large numbers of calls down at a much lower frequency, which would be indicative of the Nathusius pipistrelle. And I could hardly believe it myself. It just seemed so unlikely. But I got on to Tina the following day and she came out the following evening and confirmed that indeed it was. And they're here in significant numbers and probably numbers that allowed the trapping to take place then with them. To date, 
Thousands of these Natusius pipistrelle bats have been tagged and released in Europe. I presume it is hoped that a number of these will be recovered. It is like a needle in a haystack. But they do turn up. Recently there was a ringed bat. It was ringed in London in 2016 and it was actually turned up in Russia about a month ago where it had travelled 2,018 kilometres between London and Russia. Now, it turned up because it unfortunately was caught by a cat and was brought into the local animal hospital. But as a result of well, the ring... It was, it, it was good fortune yes. for, for the scientists, but not for the bat. Not for the bat, unfortunately, but in the sense that with this ring, Elise was actually able to document this bat was actually ringed five years ago in London and it gave very valuable information about the actual movement of this particular individual. And plenty of ring bats have turned up in numerous countries across Europe. So this sort of study does greatly help us to actually get some sort of impression of the actual travels of this really small mammal. Like the Nortusius pipistrels weigh on average about 8 to 10 grams, and yet they can travel these massive distances. Is there any advantage of migration over hibernation? Well, in the sense that while the bats are migrating, they are migrating to an area that they're going to hibernate. But in a sense, there's a large volume of insects for them to actually feed on on these migratory routes. So there must be an advantage for them to actually travel these distances to actually hibernate in southeast Europe. But there's also a huge amount of danger as they're travelling. Yes, and again, like while we do have all these banding studies going on across Europe, it is very difficult to document how many of them do survive. But the more information we have on the banded bats, the more we'll be able to answer those questions, hopefully in a few years, decades time. So even though it's now been established that bats do migrate on the continent, is there any evidence to show that bats are migrating to and from Ireland? Dr. Tina Ockney. We don't have the evidence there, so come back to us in a few years' time when we have an opportunity to go back out once uh, restrictions are lifted and we can start really investigating what is Natusius pipistrelle doing in Ireland and is it leaving the country or is it very happy just to stay here and take advantage of in County Cavan the 365 lakes that are here we have so many wonderful big lakes in this part of the island that could be very happy with the biodiversity resource for feeding on insects It may not yet be known if Irish bats migrate but one species that certainly does is our salmon In folklore, story has it that the salmon of knowledge ate the hazelnuts which fell into a well close to the River Boyne. These nuts were filled with all the knowledge of the world. Over the centuries, Irish people learned about the salmon of knowledge, but no one ever caught it or gained its wisdom. It was foretold that the first person to catch and eat the salmon would gain this knowledge, and that a man by the name of Fionn would be the one to do so. And so we have one of Ireland's favourite stories. There is no more charismatic fish than the Atlantic salmon. And on a warm October afternoon, I caught up with fishery scientist Dr Ken Whelan on a weir along the Dodder River in Dublin. Oh, Terry, Terry, there's one now. I see him. He's yeah. jumping and he's falling back down again. That's about the third one I think we've, we've seen. Yeah, the, the water's actually pushed him back down. So he's just after jumping again. Look, I've seen him. Oh, he's yeah. Oh, oh, there he goes again. Yeah, yeah. He's a, it, that was a good-sized one. OK, so let's start then with the life cycle of the salmon. And let's start with where we are now. So they're coming back from the North Atlantic. Is that right? Yeah, they're heading back from the North Atlantic. And there's two locations that they head back from. So salmon that spend one year at sea... They leave the west coast of Norway in the autumn time. They move down to a set of islands called the Faroes over winter. Uh, They feed around there until around May, June time, and then they head back then to Ireland. Now, they're coming back here to a particular river. So this salmon is coming to the Dodder. Why? Well, they're coming back for only one reason, and the only reason they're coming back is to reproduce. But why is he coming to this river? So the reason he's coming to this river, and that's why I prefaced it by saying about the reproduction, is that their instinct and indeed the um, ability that they have to find the river is absolutely dependent on where they were laid as eggs. So they have two mechanisms for finding the river. So when they are at sea, the same as birds, we think they use electromagnetic fields. And they're really very good at orientating with those. As well as that, when they're smaller, going out, they use currents. Currents may not be as important coming back. But once they get within uh, smelling distance, really, of the coast, 
they have this amazing super sensitive ability to be able to smell the water from which they came. And if you think about it, when they're going out, what they do is they imprint the smell or taste of the water on their way out. So if they're starting at the top of a mountain and they imprint the smell of the tiny little stream, as they go downstream, they layer on the actual taste or smell of different location points in the river as they go down into the estuary and out into the nearshore marine. That's so, an incredible ability. It's amazing and it's like a Swiss roll. It's completely layered inside their brain. So as they come back, the last smell that they imprinted is the first smell that they actually get. They then switch to the next smell and the next smell and they can get right back up to the location where they came from. So what's going to happen now? Well, what's going to happen is um, these fish are going to either stay in the pools where they're quite content or some fish will forge their way upstream until they find the locations that they're happy with and they will then really prepare themselves for laying their eggs. And the peak of the egg laying for salmon will be around Christmas week. In spring, large numbers of salmon leave Irish waters to migrate thousands of kilometres along the North Atlantic Drift and into the rich feeding grounds of the Norwegian Sea and the greater expanse of the North Atlantic Ocean. However, a recent report suggests that just three or four in a hundred wild salmon manage to make it back. This mortality at sea is down to a number of factors, including ocean temperatures, food availability and predators. Factors which are largely uncontrollable. But what are the dangers to salmon while they are migrating? When the salmon are migrating, there's quite a number of dangers that they face, both natural dangers and man-made dangers. And the obvious ones really are barriers. So if you have a situation where somebody has an Ardna crusher, a great big barrier in their way, it's very difficult for them to get down, to get down through the turbine. There's also smaller barriers in terms of weirs and structures of various sorts. So anything that delays the smolts on the way down means they become concentrated. And then the next element switches in, which is predation. And predation is entirely natural. I mean, for as long as salmon have been about, there's been predators. But in situations where there's man-made blockages, you can actually exaggerate the effects of the predators by delaying the fish and by concentrating them. Also, as they get lower down in a river, there may be issues in terms of water quality. And water quality could be a real issue for these little smolts. So there's a whole range of different pressures, if you like, that they have to face into. But once they have hatched out in these rivers, and I presume there's plenty of food there for them, why not stay there? There isn't enough food, though, because in most of the really good salmon rivers, you tend to be in a situation where you're in sandstone or some of the other harder rocks where you have lots and lots of gravel. These are gravel-based rivers. They don't have anything like the productivity of rivers like the Shannon. And the Shannon doesn't have the gravels. It has some, but it doesn't have anything like the gravels of the moi. So in reality, the salmon are ideally placed to lay their eggs in the faster moving waters that aren't as rich in terms of food. And the whole idea is that it generates very large numbers of small fish. And if they're going to produce really big, high quality eggs, they have to migrate. There's absolutely no way you get fish to that size in the River Dodder. Yet we have seen salmon in their teens run up here, which would be big fish from Greenland. And that makes all the difference because the big salmon coming up are laying thousands of eggs and the eggs are very, very large. They have lots of nutrients in them and there's a great chance that they'll be successful in hatching. When it's time for the young salmon to head back to sea, they only measure about 12 or 15 centimetres. They swim back on down the Dodder. And when they reach Dublin Bay, what do they do? Turn left for Dundalk or right towards Wexford? That's why it's so extraordinary. Whatever they do, they do right. And recent research has certainly shown from Inland Fisheries Ireland that the fish from the Dodder and the East Coast, generally they'll turn left and they'll head north. And what happens then when he turns left? He's going to go up by Drogheda and Dundalk. And how does he know where to go? Generally, what they do is they follow the currents and they follow the currents up along. But remember, you have an ebb and flow at sea as well. So these things we're really still researching. There's a lot of mystery still involved here. Mm -hmm. But in general, overall, the net movement is northwards, so they're able to move north. And where is he heading to? We know from recent research that the salmon from Ireland, from England, from Scotland, they're all heading up to this area in northwest Norway. But interestingly, there's no Norwegian fish there. 
and we found that out after years of research. So the Norwegian fish we still haven't really found. They're probably further north again with the Russian fish. And how do they know to get there? Is it a sense of smell? The sense of smell really comes in in terms of migrating back where they sense their actual native river. Once they get out into the ocean, it's really, we think, by electromagnetic means, the same as birds. But there definitely is a big issue in terms of being helped with the currents. And the early research that we did about 10 or 12 years ago in a big programme called SALSI indicated to us how important the surface currents are, not just the big currents, the kind of North Atlantic drift or the Gulf Stream that we know well, but these minor currents that are caused by wind because they live at the very top of the ocean, these little baby salmon. They're very much affected by these surface currents and therefore directly affected by the potential impact that climate change can have on these surface currents. And why are they going to this spot off Norway? Is it because there are less predators or is it because the climate is good or is it because there's more food? Well, it may very well be that that's originally where they came from. So we don't know is the honest answer, but it's generally because of food. And what we forget about is that salmon actually spent, if they're any way old at all, salmon have spent by that stage the bulk of their lives in the sea. So these are really sea fish, they're not freshwater fish. We tend to look on them as freshwater fish and we're only really learning about the sea part of it now. We're only 20 years looking at them at sea, we're hundreds of years looking at them in freshwater and that's why this whole marine side of the salmon's life cycle is just so thrilling and exciting. So going back to our salmon that we see here, they've been trying to get up this weir here while we've been chatting away. They're going to mate, they're going to lay eggs. What will happen to the adults? The bulk of the salmon certainly do die after spawning, but it does vary from year to year. But sometimes as many as maybe 20, 25% or more of these fish will go back to the ocean, will make it back to the ocean. But only about 5% actually make it back. So even though they make it back to the ocean, they're very weak because they don't feed in fresh water, but at the same time, quite a small proportion make it back to lay eggs for a second time. But a surprisingly, uh, to me, a surprisingly high number make it back to the ocean in order to go and try and find the food. So some of these salmon here, after they mate, then probably, what, in the springtime, they'll head back out to sea again. They'll head home again. They do, and they turn completely silvery. From a situation, the fish we saw earlier there, you saw they all had very brown coats on them. They were what we call stale salmon. They've been in fresh water for several months. By March time, they'll get pure silver. Even though they're very thin, even though they haven't eaten, they go pure silver to protect themselves and back out to sea again and feed up again. And then some of them will come back after two or three months. Some of them will stay for a year at sea and come back bigger and fatter again and lay eggs, go through it all again. It's an amazing life cycle. The salmon may migrate back to Ireland to lay their eggs in the very same river as they themselves were hatched. But it's a different story with our eels. Eels are fish with long snake-like bodies. They are nocturnal carnivores that can slither over hundreds of metres of wet grass to travel from one water system to another. Adult eels leave our rivers to travel thousands of kilometres to the Sargosso Sea to reproduce. The Sargosso Sea is the only sea not surrounded by land and is so named because of the huge floating masses of sargassum seaweed which provides food and shelter for eel larvae. But we still know very little about their life cycle. In November, I caught up with Dr Kira O'Leary of Inland Fisheries Ireland. Kira is Senior Research Officer in charge of the Eel Monitoring Programme, which aims to learn more about this elusive, slippery subject. We've been monitoring silver eels on the River Barrow, and that's the adult eels who are migrating downstream, and they're going to go out to spawn in the sea. Mm-hmm. And we have some former eel fishermen who have always fished on the canals, so that's what we're doing here. We've got a fisherman who used to work on the commercial side, and he's helping us out doing some research monitoring. Silver eels are the adult eels and they're the the adults that are going back out to sea and when they leave us, they go to the Sargassa Sea. Yeah, the Sargassa Sea, most people will think of the Bermuda Triangle and we've known that they've spawned there for about 100 years yet in all of that time we've never actually found an adult European eel in those waters. Well, how do you know they've spawned there if you've never found an adult there? (laughs) We find the larvae. So there's been many, many surveys where they've looked at the larvae and they can age them and see how they've progressed in size and across the Atlantic you can find them but the smallest, youngest ones are in the Sargasso Sea so we know it's there, we just haven't found where the adults are. 
Okay, well, let's start with the life cycle, and we'll start here where we are today in Gregnamana. We're with the adults. These are the silver eels. They're going back out to sea. They're going to swim, what, four, five, six thousand kilometres. They're going to head down to the Sargasso Sea. They're going to mate. They're going to produce eggs, which will grow into larvae. And then these larvae will start to head back up again. Is that right? That's correct. So the larvae will start to come back uh, around January, February in Ireland. We'll start to see them in our estuaries. They're called glass eels, so they're completely see-through. But they look like an eel. They're a small little eel. Most of them will decide to stay in the estuary. They can spend their whole life in the estuary before they leave to go out as a silver eel. But some of them decide to move up to fresh water. And they start to do that around March, April, May, when the water starts getting warmer. It seems crazy that they go all that distance to mate to come back to the very same place here again. The eels that left Ireland, their offspring won't come back to Ireland. So it's potluck what we get next year. It just depends on the larvae that are passing out in the Atlantic Ocean there, what turns into Ireland and what goes to France, what goes to the UK, Norway. So we don't get our returns. It's not like salmon in that regard. These larvae have no memory of of Ireland, whereas the salmon, they've been imprinted on our rivers. And so that's how they make their way back. But for the eel, it's just whatever we get now next year, that's what we have to work with. At a weir like this, we have the opportunity to put an elver box in and we can capture these eels and we can start to record year on year what the numbers are like. Sadly, their numbers have dropped dramatically in the last few decades. Eels are an important component of the diet of many species, including otters and herons, which preferentially select eels over salmonids due to the higher fat content of eels. In addition, Elvers provide a significant source of food for many other species in the spring, at a time when demands of the breeding season are at their height. So how concerned are we, or should we be, that the eel is at risk? We're very concerned for the European eel. They were listed as critically endangered in 2010 by uh, the IUCN Council. The EU have introduced a regulation since 2007, which basically means that every member state in Europe has to have an eel management plan and they have to ensure that their silver eels are getting out to spawn. And how are we doing? We're doing okay. We're doing our bit in terms of we've we've closed the fishery in Ireland. We are trapping and transporting eels around our hydropower stations because the hydropower turbines are a problem for eels. But there's a lot of reasons for the decline. And some of it we understand and some of it we don't. But we're getting our silver eels out, as you can see. We're monitoring them here today. And that's the one thing we have control over. And so that's what we're doing. And so in Ireland, we're doing our bit to conserve the species. So what's the hope and the plan for these eels that you've monitored and tagged here today? Well, our main hope for these guys is that we get them back into the water here and they can continue on their journey and, and help conserve the species. And you'd hope then that in the next week or two that they will head out to sea? Yep, absolutely. They'll, they'll make their way down, go all the way down to, to Waterford Estuary and out to the Irish Sea. So we're going to let these adults go now, is that right? That's right now. Okay, so we grab the box and we're going to head down to the release site, which is just here at the side, is that right? It's just... That's it, it's nice and calm here, so we'll let them recover and rest here for a little bit and then they'll start migrating downstream once they've recovered a little bit. We can't finish our foray into migration without mentioning the many bird species which visit our shores every year. Monitoring the comings and goings of migratory species is an essential part of conservation and keeping an eye on the health and numbers of various species. Traditional monitoring methods are effective during the daytime, but what about birds that arrive at night under the cover of darkness? With the magic of modern technology, Sean Roynane of Irish Wildlife Recordings specialises in capturing the sounds of migratory manoeuvres in the dark. So this is a ringed plover. It's a small species of wader. It's a breeding species in Ireland, but in the autumn we get an influx of migrants from further north, so up around Scandinavia. So what we're listening to is the recording of a ring plover that's flying overhead at night. Exactly, yeah. So this bird has most likely just come in off the sea and it's just arrived into the estuary there. It might spend the winter there or continue further south to the likes of Spain or France. Well, let's have a little listen to it. And you can definitely hear it flying overhead there. It's coming in on one of the speakers and then it's moving across the far side. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So 
This device has two microphones, one on the left and one on the right. And if you orientate this, you can tell exactly the, the direction that the bird is coming from and going to. Another species that you've recorded to at night is the snipe. Let's have a little listen to that. Now talk me through what's happening. This species is highly migratory. It does breed here, but in the autumn you get big influxes of birds. So this is again is a bird that's arriving in and calling in flight as it passes over the microphones. And how many species have you recorded at night on migration? I reckon about maybe 50 or 60 now. Some birds don't vocalise at night time, so you're not going to pick those up, but many do. On a good night I probably get about 10 to 15 species. And what about numbers of each species? Again, on a good night, you could have several thousand calls. So you're talking a few hundred birds in a good night. After having listened to some of these sounds of the birds on migration, what I'm amazed by is the difference in the call. It's completely different to what I've heard in the daytime. Some of the calls are the same, but some of them are really quite different. And it's, it's taken some people a little bit of detective work to figure out what's going on. The people over in the sound approach, the likes of Magnus Rob, have done a lot of work have really laid the foundations for, for people in Europe. For example, if you listen to water rail migrating at night time. Right, let's have a listen to that first. Yeah, so this call, while it has a little bit of a similarity in the tone, it's really quite different to what you hear from these birds in the daytime. Okay, let's have a listen to that now. <laughs> Another example is little grebe. At night time they, they sound really quite different and they have a number of calls which really trick people in the beginning when they're just starting this process. Okay, well let's have a listen to it in the daytime, the one that we're most familiar with, the one I'm certainly most familiar with at the dawn chorus. And this is what it sounds like at night. Now, what height do these birds fly at at night? Can you see them? A lot of the time, they fly surprisingly low, just over tree height. That sounds extremely low. You would have thought if they're flying at that height, they'd crash into something. The most productive nights when, when I'm recording at night time is when there's fog and it, it pushes birds down lower. And as a result, I detect them much easier on the recorders. There are a lot of birds that are flying up much higher and they're just not picked up by the recorder. So what you're picking up really is, you know, just a portion of the birds that are flying over. The other thing I noticed too about the recordings is that they're totally different to the recordings that you would hear, say, in springtime. They're much, much shorter, sharper bursts. Yeah, I mean, birds aren't expending the same amount of energy on vocalisation at night time because they're not proclaiming any territories they're just maintaining contact with one another. So they're just short, simple calls for that reason. And why do they actually call then at night? Well, when they're flying at night time, they like to keep in contact with one another to make sure that they're flying in the right direction and that there's no potential dangers. There's various different theories. Nobody really knows the answer for sure. I've even heard people saying that they call to each other to kind of gauge what speed and what height that they're flying at so they can maintain you know, a safe distance and safe height on their journey as well. So we know that migration has been taking place for hundreds of years now and we know that it's now taking place at night. So really what you're doing is you're making the invisible visible. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's a number of us recording at night now. We have a little group and slowly but surely, you know, we're adding to the picture and we're, we're starting to figure things out and... I'd say in a few years' time, we'll have a very different picture of what's actually happening at night time here in Ireland. The island of Ireland finds itself in a unique position when it comes to bird migration. Situated at the very edge of Europe and at the intersection of several intercontinental migratory flyways, it receives vast numbers of both summer and winter migrants. It is the first port of salvation for weary transatlantic voyagers a warm holiday destination for Arctic nesters eager to escape the polar winter and a key staging post for several species that are en route to Africa. Earlier, we mentioned the swallows. 
It's fascinating how they can find their way to Ireland using some internal clock and their ability to somehow use the sun and stars to navigate. Unlike butterflies and bats, these incredible creatures are in it for the long haul. Spending weeks on the wing, traversing massive tracts of ocean and inhospitable land tracts. Brian Burke of Birdwatch Ireland has been tagging and monitoring the behaviour of migrating lesser blackback gulls for a number of years now. And he told me about the phenomenon of differential or partial migration. So if you have a look there in the scope, uh, you'll see a lesser blackback gull, a juvenile lesser blackback gull. And if you look... Okay, I'm, I'm having a look in there. I can see it, yeah. A blue ring, is that right? It's yeah, that's it. 13, is it an A I can see? Yeah, that's it. 13A and there's a little semicolon and then OR. So that OR stands for RE, because that's a bird that we ringed uh, just over the summer on Loch Ree. So Brian, you've been ringing these birds, the lesser blackback gull, for a number of years now in Loch Ree. But we're not in Loch Ree tonight. We're here in Sandymount Strand. Yeah, and the lesser blackback gull is one that is migratory. So it's one that it's, they're leaving Lottery now and they've been leaving for the last couple of weeks, heading to the coast and then they're going to head south. South to Africa? Yes, so um, a lot of them are going to head to Africa. Certainly that young bird there will be heading towards Morocco, maybe Senegal, even as far as the Gambia. But I've read recently that not all lesser blackback gulls migrate. Some of them will actually stay in Ireland. Yeah, so they do this really interesting thing. Not only do they migrate, but it's this differential migration. So as they get older, they don't migrate as far. So the young birds, like that bird there, that first-year bird, will go right down to Africa. Birds maybe that are are two and three years old, those birds probably won't go as far as Africa. They'll hang around in the Algarve, Portugal, south of Spain. And basically, as they get older, and certainly once those birds become breeding adults, they don't want to go too far away from their nesting area. So they're going to migrate kind of less and less. They're going to be wintering further and further north and some of them might even just spend the winter further south just in Ireland. But I thought the idea of migration was to go somewhere where it was either warmer or safer or there's more food. Why are some of them deciding to stay then? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, We can kind of speculate to a certain extent. Certainly that migration, and especially with juveniles, it's very much about going to where there's a reliable source of food and stuff like that and exploring the wider landscape even on an international level as they get older they probably have a good idea of where there's suitable habitat that's maybe en route and migration is hugely costly you know whether you're a small bird or even a big bird like that lesser blackback gull it takes a huge amount of energy to cross seas so really if you can avoid doing that if you can avoid spending that kind of energy and if you can stay a little bit closer to your nesting area you'd be in better breeding condition when the next summer comes around. You'd be able to claim your territory, your nesting spot. You'd be in good nick to attract a mate and hopefully it'll loads of energy to uh, raise two or three um, chicks. Okay, going back to this partial migration, how do the birds know this year, this is the year I'm going to stay at home? Yeah, that's one, again, one of those things we can really only speculate, but it's just, it's instinct. You know, they kind of feel like they should go so far and then the next year they feel like maybe they don't need to go as far. It's not that they all stop at a certain point in the map as they get a year older. You know, you get a few birds, but it's just every year as they get older, it's a smaller percentage that are going that further distance. Now, over the last number of years, you must have ringed hundreds of these birds. And I'm sure a number of them have been seen in Africa. Yeah, we're really delighted when we get a reciting of one of our birds, whether it's somewhere in Ireland or whether it's as far as Africa, but obviously they are the highlights. As of this year, we've ringed about 1,200 lesser blackback gold chicks. They've been seen in, I can't remember how many countries, but they've been seen right along the migratory route. So they've been seen on Loch after they fledged in Limerick, uh, in Cork, in Dublin. And then they've been seen in the UK, they've been seen along the coast in France, in northwest Spain. We've got a good few sightings in Morocco, a few in um, Senegal and Western Sahara. And then we've had one bird in the very first year of the project that went as far as the Gambia. That was the real highlight. That's incredible. But the $64,000 question, do you see many of your ring birds here in Ireland in the deep winter? Not yet, because the project is only a couple of years old. As of next year, we expect to see them actually nesting on Lottery. Uh, and as the project uh, goes on for more and more years, we're going to see more and more of our ringed birds turning back up in the colony. But how many of them will be staying in Ireland for the winter? It'll be really, really interesting to see. So we actually get a lot of our birds. You would expect that this route from Lottery go over to Dublin and straight down the Irish Sea is the ideal migration route. Actually, a lot of our birds have been seen in Limerick. So it seems that 
they follow the River Shannon out of Loughry down as far as Limerick uh, and they pop up there in the spring as well so they seem to migrate back that way as well so whether they'll just hang around in Limerick for the full winter maybe some of them will be down in Cork down in Waterford and Wexford uh, if you look at the wintering range of lesser black buckles in Ireland over the the winter months uh, it tends to be those southern counties that get the, the real um, strongholds for them and because these birds are ringed you know how old each of these birds are and at roughly what age they are when they decide to stay in Ireland for the winter. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's projects like ours, but there's you know similar projects all over Ireland, and the UK and Europe. And it's really kind of um, piecing together and pooling all that data um, from loads of different projects. And that's when you can really zoom out and get the big picture for what a species like the lesser blackback gull does throughout its range. Should the public be looking out for these ringed birds? Yeah, absolutely. So anytime you see a gull, whether a big species uh, like the lesser blackback, just keep an eye out. If you've got binoculars, keep an eye out for the leg ring. You'll see the colour of the leg ring will be pretty obvious uh, and there'll be a little code on it. So just make a note of that. Uh, and if you want to contact Birdwatch Ireland or you can look it up online uh, and report that ring. So our project is a collaboration between a few local ringers and the National Parks and Wildlife Service in Roscommon and Lanford. So we're always really, really delighted any reports of our birds around Ireland. So as these gulls get older, they discover that it's not necessary to travel all the way to Africa every year for the winter. Brilliant. We are fortunate in Ireland to play host to a whole range of migratory bird species, but we've always got room for one more. The osprey is a magnificent bird, often referred to as the fish hawk. It feeds on fish that it snatches from the surface of the water. Their long muscular legs enable them to stretch below the water surface to grab their prey, which might have been spotted from some 30 metres above. The strength in their legs is also used to hold the fighting fish still and to suspend it mid-air in a head-first aerodynamic position until arriving at a perch to dine peacefully. Ospreys will readily adopt artificial nest platforms especially if there is a shortage of suitable trees in which to nest. It's not commonly found in Ireland and definitely doesn't nest here, but their migratory route does cross the country and occasionally they land here. Peter Phillips of Birdwatch Ireland has been encouraging them to stop over in Dundalk Bay and hopes that in the not too distant future they may actually breed here. You can see a post just at the edge of the salt marsh. That's the osprey's favourite perch. It's been hanging around here for the last two weeks or so and it just seems to like this perch for fishing from. Now, ospreys are not normally found in Ireland. Well, would you believe 200 years ago they were um, and they were driven to extinction but they do migrate up and down from Scotland and they pass through Ireland and one of the favourite places to stop is Dundalk Bay where we are here and Every year, spring and autumn, we usually get a bird. Sometimes they stay for a day, sometimes they might hang around for a couple of weeks. And we were very fortunate last summer, a bird spent the entire summer in the bay. So it shows that there's plenty of good fishing here for them. So normally the ospreys would spend the summer in Scotland and then they would migrate down to Africa and cross over Ireland. That's right. So they kind of saunter on down through Ireland and then head down through France, Spain, into North Africa and then they winter off the coast of Africa around Senegal. And it's a, it's a long journey. They've radio tracked some birds and they've, it's like 6,000 kilometres the birds travel down to Africa and back. So you're talking about a return trip of maybe 12,000 kilometres and it can take the birds up to 45 days to travel down. But they will stop at favoured sites along the way to fish. So uh, Dundalk Bay is a popular location. Now, it's quite a small bay. Why is it so popular with the birds? Well, it's a, it's a horseshoe-shaped bay, if you can imagine. It's really well sheltered. There's a couple of large rivers from Loud flow into it. So kind of you have the mix of habitats. You've got the freshwater, you've got the brackish water lagoon, you've got saltwater marsh, you've got tidal areas, and you've got the open sea. So it's got a real kind of eclectic mix of fish in it. So it gives the ospreys great opportunity to fish for different kinds of fish. Now, this particular bird that's been here in the bay... You told me earlier on that it was tagged. That's right. Uh, one of the bird watchers noticed a blue ring, a darvic ring on its leg. So there's been several successful reintroduction projects in Britain in, in the last decade or so. And those birds are all ringed as chicks. So we know that the birds are coming from Britain down through Ireland and heading on to Africa. And they're not birds necessarily from Scandinavia, from where the original population came from. Now, sadly, Ireland is the only country here that doesn't have any breeding ospreys. They're in Scotland, they're in Wales, they're in, are they in Northern Ireland? No, they're, they're not in Northern Ireland, not on the island of Ireland at all. So they, they weren't extinct in Britain for about 150 years. 
similar to Ireland, they were persecuted. And then a couple of migrating birds heading up to Scandinavia stopped off in Scotland and they started breeding in the late 1950s, early 60s, and the population slowly grew. And now with that natural population and a few reintroduction projects, there's 400 pairs now in Britain. And I think we're seeing the benefit of that in Ireland as there's more birds breeding in Scotland, Wales and England there's more birds migrating through Ireland and that's why we're seeing an increase in Dundalk Bay. Is there any chance that they would breed here in Ireland again? Well, I think I I read a report from the Irish Raptor Study Group and they felt that the limiting factor for ospreys was the lack of suitable nesting sites. So they like to nest in old trees but they will take readily to human-made platforms. And all all over the world, there's really successful projects where people have put up nesting platforms for ospreys and they've taken them up. And what we're hoping to do here in the Bay is we're hoping to put in maybe four or five nesting platforms to give the ospreys the opportunity to nest here once again. It's uh, it's 200 years since they last bred. We've had the reintroduction of the white-tailed seagull, the red kite, the golden eagle. Recently, we've seen the return of the marsh harrier, another breeding species that went extinct but has just recently started to breed in the last couple of years. So this is kind of one of the last links in the chain of top predators, birds of prey, to nest back in Ireland again. And is that a realistic prospect? Well, it would probably take a few years. I mean, I think if we put up four or five nesting platforms, we've seen that the birds do hang around the bay. They will spend the summer here. So I think... Once the population grows in Scotland and England and there's less and less available territories for young birds, they will naturally disperse to other areas and Dundalk Bay is as good a place as any for for breeding ospreys. It's a fantastic place. You've got the Cooley Mountains, you've got the Mourne Mountains and it's, it's really just a piece of heaven. Yeah, it's a beautiful sight here. I mean, Dundalk Bay can get up to 20,000 water birds in the winter. We've got geese, ducks, wading birds. I think the osprey would be the icing on the cake. If we could get osprey back nesting uh, in Ireland, in the bay, it would be kind of the icing on the cake, the top predator in the food chain. And um, the RSPB in Britain produced a report recently and they found that ospreys were actually the top ecotourism draw in terms of birds in Britain. So there's been a number of projects in Britain where they've put up nest cameras and observation towers. Loch Garten is a famous one in Scotland and they're generating between a million and two million pounds for the local economy. So it's a win-win both in terms of ecotourism, biodiversity and, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a biodiversity crisis so I think nature needs all the help it can get. So give it three or four or five years and we may have ospreys breeding regularly here in Dundalk. Fingers crossed, I'd say within the next five or ten years we'll have birds definitely using the platform. It'll take three years before birds are old enough to nest. So they obviously have to run the gauntlet of travelling up and down to Africa for those three years and survive. But once the birds find the nest platform, I think within a few years we will have nesting osprey back in Ireland. So great news that as well as the traditional migrating species we welcome back to Ireland every year, we will hopefully have the osprey to add to their numbers sooner rather than later. And so the next time you sit on a tedious transcontinental air flight, bemoaning the lack of leg space or the quality of in-flight catering, spare a thought for all the insects, fish, crustaceans, reptiles, amphibians and mammals who annually endure brutal conditions on epic death-defying journeys to survive against all the odds to complete the circle of life. Food for thought indeed.